Hey, knock one more. Can we go thrift shopping? Hello, and welcome to the Radio DePaul podcast. This is episode 73, Hand Me Downs. We are your hosts. My name is Amy Doe. And my name is John Cotter. For this episode, we had the honor of interviewing two different people from very different sectors of the resale business. I talked to Dwayne Scott Cerny from the Broadway Antiques Market. And I talked to Matt Jones, also known as Shy City Thrift. Both interviews speak about resale in the modern world. We're going to begin by talking to Dwayne. Resale is a market that's full of stories, which is something that I usually forget while rifling through the racks at my local Goodwill. Sometimes I'll see a name in Sharpie scribbled on a coat tag, or a dog-eared page in a young adult romance, and wonder what kind of person used to own this thing. Dwayne Scott Cerny is no stranger to this feeling. Um, okay, so we, we, are we... Yeah, we've been recording. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we <laughs> Oh, you sneakers. <laughs> My name is uh, Dwayne Scott Cerny. I'm the co-owner of the Broadway Antique Market at 6130 North Broadway in the Edgewater neighborhood. Having been in the antiques business for over 30 years, Dwayne has gathered a lot of stories. Stories that have now been published in a collection called Selling Dead People's Things. People, people actually like the idea of going with me. If I could take the reader with me uh, on these jaunts um, and, you know, into the house. Um, and it's like I always say, there's high-end hoarders, there's low-end hoarders. You know, I could take you into the basement. We can go up the attic stairs. We could dig around together. Um, and it's real. Being in the antiques business is a lot crazier than people think. A lot of sales happen on site, with vendors visiting the location of the estate instead of the things being moved to a nebulous third location. The, the cleanout services are absolutely helping me, and I'm helping them, because they need resources for all these, all these things. So, but that doesn't mean they're given free reign over someone's old property. Well, oftentimes, there, like I said, there is some type of an administer. Uh, of, of the estate or someone who's representing them and they steer us into we want you to see this first and often it's it's something that's a problem <laughs> so then everything kind of needs to go in a different direction mm-hmm. right the books are going to the bookseller the vintage clothing's going to a vintage clothing seller like we don't know what to do with this car that's up on wheels in you know in, in, in the yard yeah. um, and then there's, then there's somebody to call for that so I just kind of make lists of like what I, what can I help you with today what can I help you with tomorrow what can't I help you with at all mm-hmm. which is there's certainly plenty of that although Dwayne isn't specialized in anything he is partial to ephemera I'm always looking at small things uh, odd things specifically carnival memorabilia this will become relevant later the people involved in this, especially with with, with dealers, you know, and, and I mean this affectionately, it's very much of a, a carny trade. Um, what do you mean by that? In, in, in that, they're, we're like carnival folk. <laughs> um, you're just the seat of your pants. It's terrible hours and terrible food and, uh, and no sleep. You know, these people that are you know, you know, waiting in line at three in the morning to get into a house, you know, you got to be a little off. Yeah, for that. Vintage, like any other market, is subject to rises and falls in popularity. Dwayne's seen a lot of change over his three decades in the business, but what goes around comes around. 
with Instagram dealers now. Yeah. Everybody can do this, and that's a and that's a great thing. I think that's that's a great thing. Um, vintage is very much a fashion, so we're always looking for things that are uh, popular. Um, uh, right right now, of course, we've talked about vintage vinyl, and um, but any kind of stereo equipment, speakers. And again, 10, 15 years ago, that would just would just sit there. Nobody cares about nobody cares about that. Uh, now, so I'm you know, my, my my ears are up. <laughs> there's a, there's a, there's a, there's an old turntable. Where where? Yeah. Um, yeah. Being in the business sometimes means more than an exchange of goods. An object can be the catalyst for a one of a kind memory, and vintage one of a kind objects are a shoe in for a great present. A certain woman had been coming into the Broadway antique market every year for her dad's birthday present, agonizing over trying to outdo her last one every time. I said, well, you know, tell me more about your dad, you know? And she goes, well, he's retired and he loves the grandkids and blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, I said, you know, anything about it? Was he in the, was he in the service? Was he in any you know, fraternal groups or something? And there's this pause and she said, well, you know, he was an incubator baby. And I said, Okay, and she goes, but but it was like before they were in hospitals. I said no, I said meaning, <laughs> and she said, well, he was actually an, an incubator baby at the Century of Progress on the Midway. That's a technology that actually um, was uh, hospitals did not accept as real science. The Century of Progress was part of the Chicago World's Fair in 1933. Dubbed a city of possibility, it took up over 400 acres of the shoreline around Museum Campus. It was a way for Chicago to show off to the world. Think of it as if the Olympics opening ceremony was a giant state fair. A part of this gigantic exhibition was a small pop-up by a man named Martin A. Cooney. It's a glass box that looks kind of like a display case or a claw machine at first glance. Except when you get closer, you realize that inside the box are tiny, premature babies. Cooney had invented the world's first incubator and was displaying live babies in it to show off his new technology. The catch is... Cooney was never officially qualified as a medical doctor, which was why he was forced to do sideshows to make money. But at this time, premature babies weren't seen as medical priorities, and there was nothing hospitals could do to save kids that were born too early. Because of this, many turned to him and his exhibit as a last resort to save their newborn children. People would, especially immigrants, um, people without any money, would bring their preemies to him. And these are children that would just would die. There was nothing in hospitals that was going to save these children. Um, and he would take them. Um, and 80, 80 to 85% of the children that he took in survived. And, of course, they, they were returned to their parents. And, but, you know, he got a nickel apiece in between for exhibiting these. And when Coney Island closed, he moved to the Century of Progress. So, wow. <laughs> she tells me this, and I said, I know, I know. I just know, I know what I have to find for this guy. And I said, give me, give me a, a month or so. And I uh, put it out to my antique people, like what, what I wanted, basically a souvenir from that exhibit. There has to be. Um, though that was an obscure exhibit, and I do collect things from that. So I, I, really, I, did, I was the right guy to ask on this one. Mm -hmm. um, one of my dealers found something, uh, had her come in, um, and what I showed her was a real photo postcard taken on the inside of, of the uh, Incubator Baby exhibit. And what's cool about it is it's, it's typical, here we go back to the Carney thing, but it's true, uh, <laughs> that all the nurses 
are have the, it's all dressed in white and all you know starched you know these shoulder pads and these huge hats and you realize why these nurses are wearing these kind of oversized uniforms it's the scale of it and then they're holding these little preemies the the big and the little the juxtaposition of it makes it a great a great photo and so i gave it to her and she's just like a mess over this and and uh, uh she wanted to know how much and i I didn't take any money for it. I said, all I want you to do is, is call me after his birthday and tell me how it went. That's all I want. Um, and she did. And she, she, she called me up a couple weeks later. And she said, I have never seen this man cry. And he, she says, I showed him this card and he cried. And he said, and this, is in, this is in the book, this is where I came from. This is who I am. The buying and selling of memorabilia made before the internet existed is fascinating because there's only a finite number of often fragile objects. There were probably only a couple thousand postcards of Dr. Martin Cooney's baby exhibit made, and once all of those are gone, that's it. In personal situations, dealing with antiques, even if it's just a postcard, can feel like buying and selling memories axes around which people can gather and remember. You know, when you do this, you wear a lot of different hats um, and you're, you know, you're, you're a, a bit of a priest and a bit of a social worker and then oh, certainly you know, at the end of the day, you know, a retailer. Um, uh, but, but probably more to the social worker than anything else. Dwayne wants us to remember that resale isn't always just bargain hunting. I think the objects say so much more about ourselves than we're willing to acknowledge. I wanted to create just kind of a different dialogue on um, more of a respect for these things and really how they, how they affect us and, and how they change us. We're the temporaries here. Um, and I'm not getting all cerebral on it, but it just, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, just a lot more to, to this if one wants to just slow down for a second and take the commerce of it out. Dwayne Scott Cerny's book, Selling Dead People's Things, is available to order online through Amazon and in person in Barnes & Noble. He is also co-owner of the Broadway Antiques Market in Edgewater. Talking to Dwayne is was unlike any interview I've done so far because you could just tell by the way he was speaking how interested he was in this. And like both Shy City and I'm going to call him Shy City because I can't <laughs> call him Matt. I can't. Um, but you can really tell that both he and Shy City care about what they're doing. And it's essentially the same thing, but it's also very, very different. Whereas Dwayne specializes in estate sales, Shy City Thrift works primarily with sportswear. This next segment focuses on vintage clothing in the age of the internet. An outfit can tell you so much about a person without even having to talk to them. With fashion being a creative and potentially expensive outlet for individual expression. But a fresh fit can often cost a pretty penny. With some of the more hype and popular brands and styles of today's fashion frenzied world being listed at ridiculous prices with restricted quantities. With prominent brands like Jordan and Off-White being immensely appealing to many, but available to very few. This creates a sort of flaunted-if-you-got-it mentality in the fashion community, in which you see people strutting down Michigan Avenue like they're walking down the New York Fashion Week runway. 
but how can I express myself without having to take out another giant loan? This is where the thrifting culture comes into play, as it is a way to find an item that cannot be purchased at retail anymore, and usually at a fraction of the price. I got to sit down and talk with Matt Jones, who is a member of this thrifting community who utilizes Instagram as a way to market his services to the demographics who want to indulge in this vintage clothing culture. And the best part is, he's doing it all for charitable benefits. Yeah, so uh, Matt Jones, uh, the Instagram handle is at Shy City Thrift. I work full-time as a software engineer, and I also am a full-time student getting my PhD in uh, history and ethics. I'm also a basketball coach. I would see stuff all the time that maybe wasn't my size at a thrift store. I'd be like, man, this is so cool. Somebody would love this. Somebody that's like an XL or a, or a size small. And I would just leave it on the racks and when I started the page, I was able to purchase that uh, or take it home with me and, you know, pass that blessing on to somebody else while raising money for some some really great organizations. The first nonprofit is called Nine Through One Basketball. I am the, the founder of that of that nonprofit. It's essentially what you would think of as like an AAU basketball team for for high school students uh, but we also supplement the basketball and the coaching with mentorship and what we call academic advocacy which is essentially somebody who's been through college helping a student navigate high school and the transition to college and then the second charity that i donate all the profits to is called mcp rescue out and outreach it's a local dog rescue and my wife and i have been fostering dogs with that rescue for about two years now these organizations that Matt clearly cares for and is so heavily involved with act as part of what keeps him so motivated to continue thrifting with his busy schedule. Kindness is a trait that is common with Matt's work with the Shy City Thrift page, with him wanting people to experience the same giddiness that he does when finding stylish sporting apparel at a steal of a price. He even shared a personal story of what drives him to spread the love that he has for sporting apparel, with Michael Jordan's legendary sneaker lines having a huge effect on Matt's outlook on a community of clothing connoisseurs. The very first pair of, of Jordans that I bought was a pair of 2001 Retro 11. So the Jordans with the patent leather and black and red colorway. And I actually didn't go to the store to buy those shoes. I went to the store to buy a pair of Retro 3s, which had came out the month before. And this was back in the day we could actually walk into a store and buy a pair of, of hyped Jordans <laughs> uh, without waiting in line. Um, and I walked in to buy these pair of True Blue Retro 3s and the sales... The sales associate said, hey, man, hey, kid, I'm so sorry, but those are sold out. We don't have your size. And he said, but you know what? I got something you're really going to love. They come out next week, and they're a pair of bread. They're a pair, I didn't even know what they were at the time. I was just one of these retro threes. And he said, they're, they're like the most hype mics ever. You're going to love them. And I was so down and out that I didn't get the retro threes. And he was like, you know what? I'll, you know, give, me, give me your money now. I'll put them on hold. You come pick them up whenever next week after they come out. And that just always stuck in my mind is, I mean, he didn't have to do that. Uh, he could have, you know, resold them for hire or, or something like that. But, uh, you know, he just, he, he blessed, you know, the, the fifth grade version yeah. of myself with a, with a pair of Retro 11s. And so I just wanted to carry on that, that spirit with what I'm doing with the page. I don't love, you know, price gouging people. I want people to have the experience of when I find something that's amazing at a thrift store, let's see, like a, a pair of, uh, you know, 
a pair of original Jordans from the 90s. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe I just found this for a dollar and 50 cents or something like that. I want people to have that same experience that might not have the chance to go thrifting every day because they work the nine to five or they have families or, you know, they're in school full time or something like that. I remember my first purchase from Shy City Thrifts where I bought a pair of vintage Reebok classics from Matt for only $20. With this pair of shoes meaning so much more to me than just a part of my outfit. Some of the best and most memorable interviews that I have done were when I was wearing these pair of shoes, showing that these shoes have a sort of emotional meaning to me, which would not have been possible had it not been for the vintage thrifting community that Matt is a part of, specifically on an app like Instagram that is easily viewable and accessible to nearly everyone. I mean, the internet obviously helps me connect with a ton of people uh, with minimal legwork. The, the social media platforms that I use just allow me, I can snap a picture in one second, post it immediately, and it's live and available for you know thousands of people to, to consider purchasing. So it really helps me get the, get the products out there, promote the nonprofits uh, with really no legwork on my part, which is great. Yeah, I mean, I also have kind of an ambivalent relationship with the internet. I think initially I wanted to, I wanted to, when I started this, I wanted to kind of go and, and do this sort of pop-up shop style at, you know, different uh, markets across the city. And I still want to do that. Uh, but I work full time, I work with computers full time. So I said, I was like, you know, I really don't want to be, you know, on my phone more, on a, on a, on a computer more um, than I have to be. But I will say, you know, the internet has exposed, has kind of exposed the Shy City Thrift brand, if you will, to more people. And I get to meet people from, you know, all across the city that uh, I wouldn't have had the opportunity of meeting. Matt's relationship with the internet is something that a lot of people can relate to. We already spend so much time on our devices, but at the same time, these devices act as outlets to inform others quickly and efficiently. So where are the issues with this? The communication barriers present on our phone's social media apps allow people to act all high and mighty online at the tap of a touchscreen. Much easier and more convenient than acting that way in person, with the duality of digital and personal identities being a problem that Matt struggles to look past. Not looking somebody, you know, in the eye right in front of you kind of enables you to be more short, short with them. But I think kind of, I think we're going to have to push back against that because the internet's not going away. Probably only going to get easier to have more uh, separation between each other. You know, face-to-face -face meetings like this are going to be in the future, you know, fewer and far further between. I mean, actually, we probably could have done this without sitting down face-to-face, -face, right? Easily, um, easily we could have done it online. So I feel like keeping that barrier of communication to almost make it seem like the internet's not there, where you reply to people like you really do care about selling them this product, you think it's cool, they think it's cool. And like I said earlier, I really think that personal connection that you have with your page is something that has become lost in so many other pages where they get 2,000 plus followers and then they just lose communication. They think that they're very exclusive. They don't have to talk with everyone. Do you think this is something that you'll be able to keep up with as you get more popular? What do you think will happen when, when your page gets more popular? I mean, we were walking up here. I, I was telling you, I wish I had, you know, if I could do this full time, that would be, that would be a dream, right? Be be a blast because this yeah. is what I love to do. You know, it's interesting. I mean, some, I mean, there are some kind of local artists in Chicago that, you know, have, I don't know how many, you know, 100,000 followers and, you know, they're still very active at responding to DMs and that as a, somebody that buys their art, that makes me feel like I have more of a connection with them and makes me want to support them. You know, they're 
decent enough of a human being to take the two seconds to respond to me. That said, like if you know if you have like a million followers, it probably is probably very challenging to respond to every Bill and Sally that is sending you a message. But you know, I tr I try my best just to respond to people and uh, just treat them like like a like a human. As a consumer, part of what initially attracted me to Matt's Shy City Thrift Services on Instagram was his transparency in the initiative that he showed when responding to DMs and being more than happy to meet up with me in a convenient and trustworthy manner. In opposition to the norm, a welcoming change for apparel aficionados like myself. His low prices and lengthy and detailed descriptions of the items for sale show me that he wasn't just trying to make a quick profit. He truly cares and appreciates the items that he thrifts and wants their future owners to feel the same way. Matching this with the profits going towards charity makes for a unique and wholesome buying and selling experience within the up-and-coming thrifting culture that showed me that a pair of Reebok classics can mean so much more than a cheap pair of vintage shoes. It's a piece of sentimentality that is being carried down from one sneakerhead to another, with the shoes having untold stories in every scratch, mark, and imperfection, proving that I am not the only one that has created my own story with these inanimate objects. Thank you for listening to episode 73 of the Radio DePaul podcast. Big thanks to Dwayne and Matt for the fantastic interviews. If you like this episode, make sure to leave us a review on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. Make sure to like us on Facebook to stay informed. Again, my name is John Cotter. My name is Amy Doe. And thank you for listening to episode 73 of the Radio, Radio DePaul, DePaul podcast. podcast. <laughs> Have a fantastic day.